Would you please turn with me to your study outline? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. What an exciting month June is for us here at our church today. We're finishing up the Old Testament in the story. Um, next Sunday, Father's Day is going to be such a blast. Nobody has more fun with Father's Day than our church. Either the three services in the morning, also Purpose Church at 5 o'clock up in Claremont. There's going to be uh, something special for each of the men. Uh, there's going to be a message. My message is going to be uh, targeted to Father's Day. It is going to be just a great, great time between the music and the media and the message. It's going to be a fantastic time. Really, it's a perfect day to invite somebody to come with you. Next Sunday is just a great Oikos day uh, to invite somebody. And then the Sunday after that, two weeks from today, June 22nd, we will pivot to the New Testament, which means we're starting with the birth of Jesus. It's going to be Christmas in June. We're going to do Christmas carols. The message will be uh, Christmassy. The music will be Christmassy. We're going to have Christmas in June, two weeks from today, June 22nd. Then the 29th, we have our patriotic musical at 8.30 and 9.45. And then at 5 o'clock, at 11.11 service, and also 5 o'clock at Purpose Church, I'm going to preach a message, a biographical message on the life of George Washington. So it is going to be a great, great day. What an exciting month we have at PFB Purpose. Now, how many of you enjoyed the game last night, the hockey game last night? Okay. Now, you know, you hockey fans, are always complaining that I don't give enough attention to hockey compared to other sports. But I just want to point out to you that we have had the Kings logo up here in church for over five months. Look at that. For over five months, we've had the logo here. And so I just don't want to hear any more complaining on that as well. Actually, this doesn't represent the Kings, but the King of Kings. And this is his story and the story of Jesus. Title of today's study is If You Build It. And we'll finish up with the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament, then pivot to the new. Uh, Let's catch up. The exiled people of Jerusalem return to Jerusalem. The exiled people of God return to Jerusalem. The first group of 50,000 exiles returned from Babylon under Zerubbabel. The second group of exiles returned under Ezra the priest. The final group returned under Nehemiah, who desired to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Now, Pastor Brian did a great message a couple of weeks ago about the temple getting halfway built and then apathy set in. And so Haggai, you can read the book of Haggai. It's basically a sermon by Haggai preaching to the people to get beyond their apathy. They were investing all their money into their own homes and not into God's house, uh, kind of like a momentum campaign message by Haggai from 2,600 years ago. And they got beyond their apathy and finished building the temple. Now today we're going to see the wall of Jerusalem is halfway built. And it's not apathy that stops them, it's discouragement. And Satan, if he can't get you to do the wrong thing, if he can't uh, stop you or get you to do the wrong thing and to not do the right thing, then he'll get you discouraged doing the right thing. If he can't get you to do the wrong thing, he'll get you discouraged while you're doing the right thing. His favorite tool is discouragement. And whatever God has called on you to do, he wants you to get discouraged doing that thing. Now, as you look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 15, I'm going to discipline myself not to spend our whole time on this passage, because it's, it's one of my favorite passages. I've preached on it a number of times. You've probably heard me preach on it before. I think it's one of the great leadership passages in the Bible. It's also one of the great passages for how to overcome discouragement. But I'm going to resist the temptation to just come back to it uh, one more time. Reminds me of the uh, history professor in Virginia who just loved 
Patrick Henry. Just loved Patrick Henry. And he, he turned every subject he was ever teaching on to the subject of Patrick Henry. It drove his students crazy. So they got together to come up with a question that one of them could ask that he could not turn it to Patrick Henry. So one student raised their hand and says, Professor, what's horse colic? Anyway, what is horse colic? Thought about it for a moment. He says, well, horse colic is a knot of gas in the stomach of a horse that rumbles and grumbles and cries out, give me liberty or give me death. And so... So I'm going to resist that temptation, but I do just want to um, uh, kind of do the application of it. I want you to read it. I want you to look for principles for what Nehemiah did to help them overcome discouragement and why they were discouraged. Now, I want to give you a diagram of the wall of Jerusalem. And you'll see the, the darker one is the modern-day wall around the old uh, city of Jerusalem today. As a matter of fact, when I uh, studied in Jerusalem, uh, when I was in college, I spent a summer there studying. And our school, actually part of the walls of the men's bathroom, was the old wall of Jerusalem. And so my favorite run would be to run around the modern wall. That was my favorite run around the old city of Jerusalem. But if you look in the green, that's the city under the time of Nehemiah. So the wall we're talking about is not the modern day wall around Jerusalem, but instead it's that green one, which is a smaller one that Nehemiah uh, was rebuilding. Now, the title is, If You Build It, it's kind of a takeoff on the movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. I would title this, If You Build It, They Will Oppose It. Whatever God has called you to do, Satan will orchestrate opposition, criticism, discouragement to keep you from doing that thing. And it often hits at the midway point. Look at verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all their heart. It's what I call the halfway syndrome. It's halfway through something important that we tend to get discouraged. We're enthusiastic at the beginning. We're enthusiastic at the end. It's halfway when discouragement sets in. Maybe you're one of the graduates today, and you graduated from high school, but you realize you've still got you know, college beyond that. Or you graduate from college, you know you've still got grad school. Or maybe you're a sophomore, and you're halfway through that educational experience. Maybe you are fighting cancer, and you're halfway through your chemo treatments. Uh, maybe um, you work with our Kairos ministry uh, in the jail ministry with the prisoners, and maybe you're working with people that are halfway through their prison term. Maybe you're halfway through rebuilding your marriage, halfway through restoring a relationship. Maybe um, uh, you're halfway through, you're doing the Dave Ramsey thing, and you're halfway through getting out of debt. Um, Maybe you're halfway through an assignment that God has given you. Maybe you're halfway through following Christ, And you've followed Christ for years, and now just simply following him, you're getting discouraged. You're tired of this. You are weary. And so it says that the wall got halfway built, uh, but then discouragement, loss of vision uh, sets in. Uh, When I was uh, in seminary in Gordon-Conwell near Boston, about three miles from it was the campus of Gordon College. And so I coached cross-country at Gordon College while I was at seminary. And at that time, a cross-country coach was five miles long. And so as the coach, I would plant myself at the midway point. I wouldn't put myself at the beginning because my runners were fresh. I wouldn't put them myself at the end because they, once they could see the finish line, uh, they didn't need any motivation. But I put myself at the two and a half or the three mile mark because I knew that that's where my runners got discouraged. That's when they would need encouragement. And so what I want you to do, it's kind of more of a homework assignment, is to just look through verses one through 15. Read through it. 
identify what were the things that discouraged them and what did Nehemiah do to help them overcome discouragement. And then apply that to a situation in your life. You're not here by accident this morning. God called you here because you are halfway through something and you've gotten discouraged. You're halfway through it. And you look at these principles and God is gonna use that to help you. I wanna be your spiritual coach, your spiritual cheerleader to encourage you beyond the midway point to finish building the wall in your life. Or maybe, as you look through these principles, Look this week, have your eyes open for the Holy Spirit to identify you. None of his word is ever wasted, either in your own life or somebody else's life. And and there's somebody you're going to run into this week, be looking for them, that is halfway through something and discouragement is set in. And God is calling on you to be a Nehemiah to challenge them, to encourage them to move beyond the halfway point to finish the thing that God is doing in their life. Uh, Now, we'll turn to the next page, and I want to go verse by verse and more slowly through Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. The exiled people hear the word of God. It says in verse 1, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. All the people get together, and they demand a sermon from Ezra. This is like every pastor's dream. They all come together and they say, preach us. And not just that, look how long the thing is. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Now back in this time and in many places of the world today, you have a major event like this. It's a male-only event. It's a men's only get together, but the men are there, the women are there, and all the children of an age that they can understand, they're there as well. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. I don't want any more complaints about long sermons, okay? He is six hour sermon from six in the morning till noon. And the people were standing the whole time. That's even better. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. They hadn't heard it in this way for 140 years. So they're so hungry for God's word that they stand for six hours and listen attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform. The reason we elevate here is so we can all see each other and make eye contact, and that's why they did it as well, so they could all see him on this high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah and Shaman, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkajai, Hashem, Hashbadanam, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Now, you parents that are expecting children, these are some awesome names that nobody else will have. If you want your child to have a name, um, one of my children, uh, Noah, uh, just became the number one name in America for baby boys. Uh, Jacob was number one for six years, and Noah just passed it this year. Well, if you want something unusual that other people will not be picking, uh, just pick one of them uh, from that list. I expect to see them during the child dedications uh, uh, a year from now. And so all these people were there, and it says that, and this is just such an awesome moment. Ezra opened the book, the book, God's word. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, 
the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 140 years, and they're united in this way after this long period of time. What, what a moment that was. I'm sure you were touched as I was on Friday with the celebrations of the 70th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. And, and I, they had these broadcasts on 1070 where they were actual broadcasts in Los Angeles on that day. And it was so cool to hear these old broadcasts. And one announcer said that Franklin Roosevelt led the nation in prayer that night. And it's considered the biggest mass prayer meeting in all of human history. A hundred million people glued to their radios, all listening as the president led a hundred million Americans in prayer uh, that God would help us on that particular day. Then it says the Levites, and there's another list of uh, children's names that you can just read on your own there. Uh, The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Now, here's what's happening. Ezra's preaching, and the Levites are like helping the people to understand. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And this is very much the model we use at our church. Uh, Throughout the week, there are Bible studies, but but there are also Bible studies here on Sunday morning. And and that's a great thing because there's children's ministries, youth ministries, and, you know, many people take advantage of the two-hour option where you you worship uh, for an hour or so, and then you go to a Bible study class, a a Sunday school class, an adult Bible study group, a life group, whatever you want to call it, a small group. And then you study in this way under one of the adult Sunday school teachers, uh, the, the Levites here. And it's very much our model. Or if you want to do it during the week, you can look at your Connect brochure that's there in front of you in the book rack. Over a hundred different ways to do this. And so there's the preaching of Ezra. And then the Levites, the Sunday school teachers, they are breaking it down, going deeper into the word, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And you know, I want to encourage you, if you've never been a part of a life group, what about a summer experiment? Okay, I just want to try this out for 10 weeks, all right? Um, we're pivoting to the New Testament in the story. And if you look on page seven, you'll see more information in the lower right-hand corner there of the study outline page that you're on there, page four. But if you look on page seven, you'll see that all the classes that are studying the story along with what I'm preaching are in brown. Or if Sunday mornings doesn't work for you, seven o'clock on Wednesday nights, my wife has an excellent uh, class. I, had, I filled in on it a couple of weeks ago over in the H building at seven o'clock. There's even an online study. Uh, there are other studies throughout the week. I'll make it a point to put these in the program next week and to highlight those once again. And, and maybe just consider just a summer thing now that we're in the New Testament. How about just for the New Testament, the 10 or 11 weeks that we're in the New Testament, Study here on Sunday morning, read it every week, the chapter from the story, and then also go to a life group, an adult Bible study, a Sunday school class that is studying it as well as your children are in the children's ministries. And just, just try it out. Do a summer experiment with being part of a life group in addition to what we're doing here on Sunday morning and see how you like it after the, those summer months. Uh, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, 
For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Why were they crying? Because it hadn't been read to them in so long. And they, I'm sure, weren't obeying much of it. I mean, if you don't hear God's word for 140 years, things drift, okay? And so they had not been obeying it. And so they weep as they listen to this, realizing that they've not been obeying uh, God. But he says, hey, this is a day of joy. Don't be weeping. Be joyful that you found the truth that you can obey, rather than weeping for the years that you have not obeyed it. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This is the biblical basis for the Baptist tradition of going out to lunch after church. Okay, right there. Thou shalt go to Taco Bell. Thou shalt go to Norm's and shalt uh, enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and, and take somebody with you that maybe can't afford lunch. Uh, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Biblical basis for going to lunch and taking a visitor with you there, somebody that you meet here uh, on Sunday morning. You know, at Purpose Church on Sunday nights, if you ever want to check that out, maybe during the summer you come in late after the weekend, you've been away for the weekend, but you come in Sunday afternoon, five o'clock on Sunday nights, we do exactly this thing. We have the service uh, from five to six, and then we have a meal together in the community room, and fabulous meals that people have been cooking for us. It's been just unbelievable. And so we do this very thing, worship, study God's word from five to six, and then have dinner together at six o'clock after uh, that service is over. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day, and do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. There is joy in reading God's word, hearing God's word, and most of all, putting it into practice and obeying God's word. You know, let me... Just as an aside, let me just tell you where our church is at on this. There are three main things that Christians use, followers of Christ use, to figure out God's will and and to obey God. Uh, One of them, obviously, is God's word, the Bible. Another one is tradition. Now, tradition is not a bad thing. We sometimes think it is. But there is great benefit to the cumulative wisdom of, of Christians over the last 2,000 years. There is great wisdom in looking back and saying, how have Christians interpreted certain passages, applied certain passages over the last 2,000 years? There's great benefit to tradition. It's, It's not a bad thing. The other is reason. We use our minds. God said, love the Lord your God with all your mind. And so we use our minds. What makes common sense in applying God's word? What, what we, we pursue intellectual pursuits in understanding. But here's the key. What wins when the three of those things come in conflict with each other? I don't know if you remember, when I was a kid, we always played the game Rook. And in in Rook, um, there were four colors, and one of them would be declared Trump. And so whatever color was Trump, that color would always win against uh, another color. So if if Trump was black, then black would trump red and and the other colors when they came in conflict with each other. So, So which of those three trumps the others? Now, some followers of Christ through the years, tradition trumps the others. That is, when God's word comes in conflict with tradition, they'll say, well, I know God's, the Bible says that, but we've always done it this way for this number of years, and so tradition wins out when they come in conflict. 
The greater danger today is reason trumping the other two. That is, we will follow God's word as long as it's okay with the culture around us. But if the culture changes around us, all of a sudden we find things in the Bible that have never been discovered there for 2,000 years. All of a sudden, people apply passages in ways that make no sense. They take the Bible and they stand it on its head. They do do gymnastics, spiritual gymnastics with God's word, twisting it in order to fit what is reasonable to their minds. This doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't seem fair to me. This doesn't fit what my culture is telling me to believe. And so really what that signifies is that their final authority is not God's word, but instead it is our minds. We make this the final word, what seems reasonable to them. This is what we will always do as a church until Jesus returns. God's word will always be the final authority. And when tradition bumps up against it, We will change. I am willing to change anything to reach new generations for Christ as long as it doesn't contradict God's word. God's word will win. The, the, the The call of God to reach our world for Christ and to reach each successive new generation for Christ will always win over tradition or the way we've always done things. It also will always win over Reason, And even though our culture may change, and even though our culture may tell us certain things are foolish, or even when our minds, I mean, think about that. I had a critical letter, actually, from a person that knew about our church from the other coast. It was from Florida, actually, and criticizing us for our certain stances on things, and, and said, who made you, uh, no, that was a different letter. That was one in Florida. This was, this is, this is, this one was from Portland, okay? That one was from Florida, and that one was, you couldn't print what was said there, okay? Uh, but the one from Portland was a bit more reasonable, and that person said, you know, who, who made you, the, you know, God in this? And, 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 and my response is, you know, when you make your mind God, who makes you God? See, as soon as it's not grounded in this book, we become the one that says this makes sense and this doesn't. It's God's word, that is the final authority. And so we let God be God in what he has written to us. And so this becomes the final word, even when it doesn't seem like it, it bounces against our reason. Even when the culture around us says that's so out of date, we will stand on this being the trump card, this being the trump color. And, and we will do this until Christ returns and all God's family said. Amen. Now, 140 years, as I mentioned, had passed since God's people had assembled as a nation united. Ezra read the scriptures, the Levites interpreted it, and the people understood and obeyed it. And we believe part of what was going on here is they had lost their ability to understand the Hebrew language. They had been, you know, in Persia and Babylon and places. And so part of it was translation and not just interpretation. Now, before we leave this and go down the home stretch, there's one other part of this, and it's found in James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's not enough to just listen to it as the people were doing. They had to do what it says. And we'll just close with that in just a moment. But let me give a modern 
okay, example of that. And then we'll do the example of what they did by putting it in, into practice. It only becomes wisdom when we do what it says. It doesn't do us any good to just hear it read or preached. We have to put it in, into action. Let me give you a modern example, and then I'll give you um, the example that, that they did. Um, great, great article. A friend of mine, the Presbyterian pastor, uh, Kitty Corner from us here, right next to, down the street from Jack and, uh, Jack in the Box. Just Kitty Corner. I have no sense of direction. Right over there, I think, is where he is. Okay. If not, it's, it's um, 24,000 miles around the earth, and then, then that's where it is. Okay. But the Presbyterian pastor over there, he sent me this article. And it's a new book that just came out based on uh, eight years of research by Shanti Felton. The name of the book is The Good News About Marriage, and the title of the article was Author Debunks Myths About Divorce Rates, Including That of Churchgoers. Let me just show you how this is going to apply to that verse. Let me read part of it. Many of the most demoralizing beliefs about marriage, especially when it comes to discouraging statistics commonly passed around, are just not true. You know, statistics aren't always true, okay? Or, or the myths we have about certain statistics. The statistics are true, the research is true, but we develop myths that are not true, says social researcher and best-selling author Shanti Feldhan. A subconscious sense of futility around marriage is everywhere. That is, people think you just, it's just impossible to make a marriage work. That's what's just in our culture right now. They're just a mess, and so who can do anything about it and just let it disintegrate into whatever you feel like doing at any particular moment. Just it disintegrates into just whatever. Everybody just doing as they see fit in their own eyes. Because after all, marriage is such a mess that there's no hope for it anywhere. As everywhere, everything we hear says that marriage is, quote, in trouble, states Feldhan. And while some of the bad news is accurate, for example, 41% of children are born out of wedlock, many of the most demoralizing beliefs just aren't true. For example, the notion that half of all marriage end in divorce. How many of you have ever heard that? Half of all marriages. Absolutely not true, statistically. Or that the divorce rate is the same in the church as outside the church. How many of you have ever heard that? I have. Absolutely not true. Neither are anywhere close to being true. In the good news about marriage is the result of an eight-year investigative study that she believes reveals the truth about the state of marriage and divorce in today's culture and churches. I started learning just how much of our discouraging conventional wisdom about marriage and divorce was wrong and how much it was killing marriages. In all my research with individuals and couples for my books, I kept seeing that whether a couple made it through a tough time was directly tied to whether they had a sense of hope or a sense of futility. Do you see that? If you think, well, you know what? Hardly any of them work anyway, so I guess mine can't either. If someone thought we're going to make it, it was a completely different situation than, than, than once they started to think this is never going to get better. So the sense of futility was killing marriages. And yet I noticed we have a culture-wide feeling of the futility about marriage. Everyone thinks of marriage as, quote, being in trouble. Everyone just knows that 50% of marriages have ended in divorce. Not true. Everyone just knows that the rate of divorce is the same in the church as outside the church. Not true. Everyone who has ever been divorced just knows that 60% of second marriages don't make it. And yet I started coming across all this data that seemed to completely contradict the conventional wisdom. Like that according to the 2009 Census Bureau numbers, 72% of people are still married to their first spouse. 72% of people in America are still married to their first spouse, and the 28% who aren't 
includes people who were married for years until their spouse died. Three-fourths are still married to their first spouse, and of the remaining 28% or fourth, many of those are people that were married to the same person until their spouse died. When I would share some of these numbers with people, the reactions were sometimes dramatic. Standing in front of me, I saw the difference between being defeated and feeling hopeful. People were grasping the good news like a life preserver. I felt this study had to be done. The most important big picture truth, contrary to popular opinion, most marriages are strong and happy for a lifetime. That doesn't mean most marriages are perfect. There are still plenty of legitimate concerns out there. But for our culture as a whole, the marriages that are unhappy, the ones that don't make it are the exception rather than the rule. To prove that, we debunk five different discouraging pieces of conventional wisdom about marriage in the book. Let me just mention two. First is the idea that half of all marriages are ending in divorce. While some high-risk groups, like those married as teenagers, may have a 50% divorce rate, we've never come close to that as an overall average. After looking at dozens of studies, I believe one of the most meaningful statistics is the one I mentioned earlier. 72% of people are still married to their first spouse. Another very important finding was that the rate of divorce is not the same in the church. That is a misunderstanding of the Barna group data because Barna was not trying to study divorce, quote, in the church. They were studying beliefs. So those who said they held Christian beliefs had the same divorce rate as those who said they didn't. But since Barna wasn't studying actions, the researchers didn't include worship attendance in the analysis. So I partnered with Barna. We reran the numbers. And if the person was in church the prior week, their divorce rate dropped 27% compared to those who weren't. Just by being here today, you're dropping it for the next six days. But you got to re-up next Sunday, okay? I want to just let you know that. Many Sundays, many studies have found that church attendance drops the divorce rate 25 to 50% compared to those who don't attend. It also increases happiness in marriage and has several other dramatic life and marriage outcomes that we cover in the book. Do not merely listen to the word. Do not just have affirm certain beliefs as the first group in the research did. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Place yourself under the authority of God's word and then the blessings and the changes will come. Now, that's a modern example. Let me just finish off with what they did. The exiled people reenact the Feast of Tabernacles. And at this point, the praise band uh, can come back up. Praise band, you can come back up right now. Um, They read, as they get together with Ezra, say, read us what we're supposed to do. And one of the feasts was the Feast of Tabernacles that they had not been celebrating. And so they decided to act on what they had been hearing and to to do the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. And... um, And as I mentioned last Sunday, all the Old Testament festivals always point to Jesus. They always point to Jesus. And it says that when they did what the Word of God said to do, at the end of verse 17, it says, and their joy was very great. Our joy doesn't come from merely saying we believe certain things. Our joy comes from doing what it says. That's where the joy comes from. So about 460 years go by, and God is silent. About 460 years, God doesn't say much, if anything, between the Old Testament, Nehemiah, Malachi, and the New Testament when Jesus is born. 
Uh, One of the chief features in later years of the Feast of Tabernacles is at the highlight of the feast, they would draw water from the fountain of Siloam in Jerusalem. And about 460 years later, it's now 30 AD, they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. They draw the water from the fountain at Siloam. And the Bible says on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And so the next time we pick up the story, that'll be the rest of the story. All the clues that we've been looking at for what, 30 weeks, 31 weeks, um, or 20 weeks, 21 weeks. All those clues at the beginning of the story point to the one final result, which is Jesus. Next week we'll talk for Father's Day, and the week after that, Christmas in June. Let's stand up. Let's worship for a few more minutes.